This episode of Inspiration Point is brought to you by the Quests and Chaos Podcast Network and the generous patrons over on patreon.com slash inspiration point. So we'd like to give a big shout out to Punching Potato, Garlic Bread, Eric, Dragon Workshop, Spike, and Red Dead Coquette. And at our Muse $20 level, we'd like to thank Prostaskias, Leroy, Kate, Jeremy, Jenna, Jacob, Falangor, and Cheryl. Thank you for helping us bring a little inspiration out into the world. And now, on with the show. All right. Hello. How are you doing, Tiana? I am hanging in there. How about yourself, Adam? I'm glad you're hanging in there. Otherwise, my hanging would be quite solitary. Oh, that Um, would be very unfortunate. Yeah. Well, first time. That's a reference to a movie you haven't seen. That is, in fact, a movie that I have seen. I've seen oh, most really? of the Pirates of the Caribbean films, yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. I was referencing a different film. Really? I was is referencing uh, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Ah, um, uh, that definitely is one that I have not seen. You are correct. But you've probably seen the meme a thousand times. Oh, five like, million. Ja- yeah, James Franco's got the noose around his neck. He's turning to the other guy being hanged, and he's like, first time? (laughs) Beautiful. Yeah. uh, So, anyway, I'm doing pretty good. I I had a nice day, went out with my folks and my daughter, and, uh, well, we got some storage space over where I'm moving so that we can kind of get a jump on things, because we just don't know when we're going to finally move. Sure. And so we've been in this, like, weird holding pattern which is a sports reference, which I barely understand. Um. <laughs> I'm glad because I was about to be like, Adam, uh, do I look like someone who plays sports? <laughs> uh, may- maybe field hockey. Um. <laughs> okay, I'll grant you that one, maybe. <laughs> if I'm going to stereotype. but um, I, I'm, actually, uh, I'm actually getting ready to take up Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So, you know, that's a that's a sport. Yeah, I that that is some good stuff. I you know, my daughter did a little bit of that in her, her karate class and they were doing like grapples and stuff and I was like, "Man, man martial arts have, has definitely changed uh, mm. since I was a kid. I did karate when I was younger and it was much more about like like workout and confidence. Uh but there was very little in the way of like practical like how to actually win a fight, which sounds weird. Um, but you know, they're marketing this to like parents to like get their kids some confidence, not really, you know, raise a generation of kickboxers or whatever. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, the, the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu class, cause I, I've gone to one class and the one that I went to had the kids class like right before it and watching the yeah. kids rolling around like puppies was the most adorable thing <laughs> ever. It is adorable too. But I could also see how the forms were being used. Like I, as I was starting to learn a couple of these things, I was like, oh, this is what the kids were using. And it's more about getting it into their body and learning the mechanics of it. It's been surprising watching how like fighting sports has i think in a lot of ways created like a lot of positivity Mm -hmm. out there you know some people use it as like a way to connect spiritually some people use it for just community stuff but it is a practical way of looking at fighting and what's interesting about jiu-jitsu or brazilian jiu-jitsu i should say is that you can definitely get yourself out of a pinch if the other person doesn't know what they're doing you can do so while not injuring them, 
But also, you definitely have the option to injure them. <laughs> yes. Uh, there were, even in my very first class, before they realized it was my first class, there were a couple times where I was like, oh, that joint's not meant to go that direction. Yeah, everything I learned as a kid was like, strike hard, really hard one time, like win in a hit. And if you don't, run away, <laughs> you know, um, you, you can't really strike without injury. Mm -hmm. But grappling is, is so much better for that. And I'm, I did feel better watching my daughter do some of that stuff. Gives, gives me some peace of mind. So I'm glad you're getting into that. And are you feeling the burn? <laughs> so I've only been to one class so far. Uh, the day after I was fine, a couple days after I was like, oh, I can't walk. <laughs> and it wasn't even so much the actual like martial arts training itself as the quote unquote warm up. I was like, this uh, isn't a warm up. This is a full on workout. What are you talking about? Because it involved like the easiest part was jogging around the the training space. Some of them were like, pick this other person up on your back and walk around with them on, on your back and then do squats while they're still hanging onto your hips. And I'm just like. If I try to do that, I will throw up and fall over because I'm going from sedentary <laughs> straight into this. I'm like, I need to modify this for my body because if I don't, uh, no one's going to be happy. No, Yeah, well, it, that is a hard transition, right? Uh, and I guess the hardest time is is in the beginning. Um, but you are actually not a stranger to workouts. No, I've I've been in and out of various kinds of workouts for years. I mean... Um, I used to be part of the SCA heavy combat, and that was probably the hardest like fighting fighting training that I've ever done. Because not only are you going through all of these movements that are uh, quick and accurate and strong, but you're doing it while wearing 15 pounds of armor. Right. Yeah. So you're definitely going to exercise some muscles while also still totally nerding out. Oh, absolutely. I I'm, <laughs> I keep saying that I'm going to try to get back into the SCA fighting. There's a whole story behind why I'm not currently in it, I'll tell you sometime. But it was it was a good time in my life when I did that. But it was also, you know, in my early 20s, so it's been a while. Yeah, and Andrew got into, like, broadsword fighting. Yeah, I'm not sure if he's still now. doing that. Is he still there? Do you know? I don't know, but it's it does seem like it would be a really good like way to I mean, you, you said it earlier and you're absolutely right. When you can connect body and mind in the like fluidity of movement, especially in training, it is a absolutely beautiful Zen kind of moment. Yeah, I did uh, some martial arts when I was younger. Like I mentioned, uh, I also took took up fencing. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I m mainly did saber fencing, but I did a little bit of foil and epee. And it was a really good time. I really liked getting into it. Um, and it was just really fun. But it is like, speaking as a uh, very sedentary person who, you know, <laughs> talks regularly on a D&D &D podcast. Uh, <laughs> you know, I can tell you, you know, when it's very easy to get out of those habits and to uh, get back to, well, a shape. Um, <laughs> Round is a shape. Round is a shape. That's right. Um, so um, anyway, I'm I'm glad you're getting getting some health. That's really good. I need to do that as well. And I'm I'm hoping one of my excuses for not working out right now is that when I move, I'm hopefully going to use my extra time not commuting and instead maybe getting healthy. Sure. So that might be a gym. That might just be a bike, like bike around the neighborhood. Uh, maybe get a dog and walk the dog. You know. 
I mean, having having a 30 to 40 pound animal looking at you with big begging eyes is a great way to get yourself out three to four times oh, a day. Man, we've been dog sitting and uh, man, this I, I forgot how annoying dogs are. <laughs> <laughs> Just every time I open the fridge, it's like they got to come see what's going on, you know, because they, they might get a treat. <laughs> yeah, I'm currently uh, staying with with my parents because I'm uh, currently, as we record this, I am currently in Alaska, and they have a dog, <laughs> but she's she's an outside dog. But I mean, it's been seven years since I last saw her, and you wouldn't ever guess by how she comes over and just like lays against my leg and then flops <laughs> to get a belly rub. She's adorable, <laughs> but she's also huge. I'm just like, oh yeah, no, you could knock me over if I wasn't paying attention when you come over. She's like, I remember this smell. Mm-hmm. I think I might still have videos of her as just a, as just a puppy because she was really cute. What kind of dog? A uh, mastiff crossbreed with something, and I can definitely <laughs> tell there's the mastiff in there because dear God, big. does she drool? And a big, big, big un, big old oh, dog. Oh yeah, big old dog. I'll I'll send you a picture later. She's very cute. She's also like her head. Her head is halfway up my thigh. Are small dogs even allowed in Alaska? Would they even survive it? I don't know. I mean, I refer to them as eagle bait, but there is one that lives in this house. So, I mean, it, it's a bigger chihuahua blend, but it is a chihuahua. Oh, okay. So you got a yipper yapper over there. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I'm all the way across the house while I'm recording. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I had this girlfriend in high school and, and she had little chihuahuas and they would just harass me. Mm. Every time I went over to her place. So a lot of times I was like, yeah, you, you want to come over to my place? You want to go literally anywhere in town? <laughs> like, <laughs> anywhere that's not your place? <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. My cat just sits and judges when my girlfriend comes over. <laughs> that's what cats do. But I like the cats do that because they do so quietly. That's um, true. They, they sit on their little perch and they look down on you as, they, as well they should, you know? I mean, they, they, they once were worshipped as gods and they have never forgotten this. No, they... <laughs> They haven't. And in a lot of ways, we still sort of treat them that way. So it's not like we're disabusing them of the notion <laughs> very well. It's true. <laughs> so, yeah. Like sometimes, sometimes they just aren't interested in our food. They're like, why would you eat that? Disgusting. Disgusting. Anyway, speaking of disgusting, I saw uh, Indiana Jones today. <laughs> oh, no. Was it that bad? <laughs> well, like, okay. It's fine. Right. It is it is a very OK movie. Oh, that's damning with faint praise right there. Right. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I kind of hated it, but like I had an OK enough time. It, it's got the girl from Fleabag uh, in it. And uh, I really like Fleabag a lot. I, I can't remember her name off the top of my head. But anyway, she she's really more the main character in it more than Harrison Ford is. And uh you know, I, re I like most people. I really like Raiders of the Lo of the Lost Ark, and I really like uh, the Last Crusade. But this marks that the number of bad Indiana Jones movies a uh, number higher than the good ones, uh, in my, in my opinions. You also didn't care for Temple of Doom. Oh, Temple of Doom to me is the number one worst. Indiana Jones movie. Ooh, um, okay. It's, it, it's been, it I, is, I, I saw it as a kid and it scarred me, so I only vaguely remember it. I, I think it's unwatchable. I, I, I just can't get through it, which is so weird right after you watch Raiders. Raiders, just, Raiders of Last Crusade are just so good. They're amazing. 
they're amazing. And, you know, this is what we're kind of getting into with the topic today. And like, I can kind of point to certain reasons why some work and some, some don't. Indiana Jones is, is almost like action hero placeholder, the character, you know, <laughs> it's, it's like, this could be anybody. There's a certain swagger, there's a certain manner, but you know, all in all, you have your, you're kind of like cowboy archaeologist going on. Sure. Um, he's got his whip, of course. He's very educated. He's surrounded by people who are not. He is not greedy. He does does not seem to be afflicted with that. He's more interested in the pursuit of knowledge and the preservation of history, hmm. which is something that we can we can like about him, because. We're all very greedy, and we kind of would prefer we weren't that way so much. And so we do treat that as a vice, and that is a vice that characters around him often possess. It's so fascinating, too, that what are considered to be Indiana Jones, his spiritual successors are things like um, Laura Croft Tomb Raider. Yes. And, oh, I've forgotten the other video game. Um Oh, uh, the Nathan Drake, uh, yeah. was it called? Uncharted. Thank you. The, the Uncharted yes. games and the Lara Croft games are considered to be, by a lot of people, to be spiritual successors. But all oh, of, for sure. But those two characters are both way more motivated by greed than they are by the pursuit of knowledge. I mean, the pursuit of knowledge happens as kind of a side effect, but right. they're always going after the artifact because they want the thing, not because that should be in a museum. Right. It, it is funny to hear him say, that belongs in a museum. I'm like, I guess I kind of like this about you because nobody would ever say that, you know, um, <laughs> so that you're motivated by this is, is interesting. You know, I want this for a non-selfish purpose is, is really what he's saying. Mm -hmm. uh, and I need to keep it out of your hands. And then it turns out a lot of these artifacts have some degree of power. And so it's not just that you're trying to preserve history. You're trying to preserve life as you know it. You know, in the in the Last Crusade, it was about the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, last, Other did I say around. Last Crusade? Yeah. Other way around. <laughs> Sorry, Raiders was about the Ark of the Covenant, and Last Crusade was about the Holy Grail, and um, the Temple of Doom was about nobody cares. Um, sure, I, I felt a lot the same way about Crystal Skull when I watched that, where I was just like. This is just the MacGuffin that you're going after. And yeah. part of what makes Indiana Jones films good to me is that this is an important thing. And it is important because of the thing itself, not necessarily even the pursuit of it. Like, why is it important? It is important because you can't let it get into their hands and it has X, Y, Z significance. And it also is like a test of your relationship with other characters, right? Ultimately, a lot of these come down to what do you value higher people or things like so bad guys are always looking for money or power of some kind so that they can achieve some some terrible end. Yeah. And that great is always what destroys them. Right. It it is. And and that Temple of Doom, uh, not Temple of Doom, Last Crusade scene where they where they choose the Holy Grail is really, really interesting. But what's really much more interesting about that movie that makes you care about what happens to Indiana Jones is his relationship with his father, played by Sean Connery. Absolutely. It's, it's about those two characters. It's about their relationship. 
And and this is really what I think separates a good story from these very plot-heavy action movies that we see in recent times that almost feel like they were written by algorithms more than they were written by humans. Mm-hmm. And, it, and by algorithm, it's like, I know chat GPT isn't necessarily good enough to write a, a full-on movie just yet. Not with yet. enough time and coaxing and working with it, you could knock one out. But it would also be awful. Yes, 100%. Chat, Chat GPT is, is terrible at writing. Well, yeah, because it's not coming up with any original ideas. It is just remixing thoughts from everyone else. And yeah, you know, the the opposite argument Correct. is every writer draws That's what from everyone their own. Does. <laughs> right. But it's with it's coming through the human perspective and, and everyone bringing their own experiences into it. Like if I were to write a horror book about you know small town america it's not going to be set in maine because i don't know maine even though i read a lot of stephen king it would be set in a small town alaska which is a whole other ball game so i think that one thing that that is really far too focused on is plot Mm. and and i feel like whether it's an algorithm or a group of executives in a room what what you get are basically a lot of like nostalgia bait buttons. Ugh. And it's like, okay, in order for this to be a Star Wars movie, in order for this to be a Superman movie, in order for this to be a whatever movie from an established IP, it must include the following elements. So you have to have at least stand-ins for all of these things. So like Star Wars, it's like, okay, you have to have a Han Solo type who's not a Jedi and is good at guns, right? Uh, Last Jedi gave you two of those. Yeah. It was like, let's let's try two Han Solos, <laughs> right, for the price of one. That'll be great. Two, two, two for the price of one. <laughs> and then it was like, okay, we have to have light and dark side. We have to have a, a sword fight. We have to have all these things, right? Check, 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 check. Uh, we have to have screen wipes. You got to have silly droids. You have to have something for kids. And you have to have something that is eminently marketable uh, for, for the toy line. Absolutely. Right. And and those are all like, check, check, check. You're done. The problem is, is that we we also forget about what it's like about about Star Wars resonates with a lot of people because of the parent child relationship. And mm-hmm. I think that that's really the secret sauce of it. Like one thing that we're all very afraid of is becoming our parents. sideways look across the house yes accurate (laughs) right yeah you're literally at your parents house i was hanging Uh out with my parents today i love my father don't get me wrong i am literally sitting in the room that i (laughs) slept in until i was seven years old (laughs) and, and you love your folks too i'm sure i love my folks to bits and pieces i also want to avoid some of the mistakes that they made sure i mean you wanted to be yourself you want to be tiana you 100%. want to be the person that you desire it to to become and i want that too you know i want to be my version of myself whatever that is and, and there are things about our parents that we adore and we look up to and there are other things that we don't like as much that mm-hmm. we would prefer to avoid and so i think star wars very much does that in fact it's pretty much on the nose about it this is about a character who very much not only doesn't want to, but very much needs not to become his father <laughs> and actually needs to pull him from where he is 
to where to where Luke is, to where the son is, to redeem him in his last moments, however deserved an audience may or may feel about that now. But I think that that's what was really resonating. You know, Raiders of the Lost Ark was still very much about a guy and a girl. Uh, Last Crusade, very much about father and son. Mm -hmm. And really good stories tend to be about primal, simple things. They're about war and sex. (laughs) And and it's basically those two things. We're also getting more and more into friendship in, in like recent trends, which I think is a positive, right? I really like seeing more of these like buddy comedies or even dramas sometimes mm-hmm. um, where where friendship or bromance as was sort of coined during Scrubs, you know, kind of became a thing. Was it really coined that recently? Yeah, I'm pretty sure Scrubs is where the word bromance. I mean, of course, there had been like buddy cop films and stuff sure. like that prior, you know, Bad Boys is older. Um, but bromance came during that time sort of like adorkable came about with like new girl sure <laughs> you know so but these are but th- these are terms that we've sort of continued to use and if you forget about that relationship or you don't execute it well i, th- I don't think you have a good story this this movie that i just watched which is the dial of destiny mm-hmm. and i'm not gonna spoil anything but it's basically the relationship that you're mainly looking at is about a man and his goddaughter. And okay. when you have a goddaughter or godson, you are supposed to have some kind of relationship, but it's not necessarily a hafta kind of thing. You know, it's complicated. Some people are, can be very close to that person in their life. It could also not happen because it's usually someone who your parents were friends with. And so it may not turn out to be a very close relationship. And in, in this case, he doesn't know her at all, really. Last time he saw her, she was a little child. And she really doesn't really want to have anything to do with him. And so we go through the story, and of course the inevitable happens. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say, you know where this is going. Sure. You pretty much know how this is going to resolve. The question is going to be, are they going to be able to nail it? And the problem is, in my opinion, with this movie and and something I'm seeing with a lot of blockbuster films lately is I found myself bored the most during the action scenes. Hmm. You know, when, when they're on top of a train and wrestling around and shooting each other and trying to grab the gun and whatever, whatever. I, I'm just like, oh, man, I wish it wasn't in a theater because I could get on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> Not like that stops people. I'm, I'm going to start bringing a, I'm going to start bringing a slingshot to movie theaters for the people who get on their phones at all times of the movie. Sometimes you do get that. And that that's really unfortunate. And I'm, I'm glad at this point that anyone's going to the theater. This movie is bombing uh, and it's bombing. Largely due to the fact that I'm not sure that that many people wanted this movie. Yeah. This is one of those things where it's like, I could definitely wait for streaming. And streaming is really killing theaters. It's yeah. really having a number. Okay. Yeah. There, there does need to be like a reason to go to the theaters. Like I went and saw uh, the Dungeons and Dragons film three times in theaters because it was a great experience in the theaters. It made it feel as epic as it was. And that's something that I think is going to be a little bit lost when it goes to streaming. I'm kind of sad that I haven't seen either of the Avatar films 
in theaters because I feel like I'm missing something that James Cameron wanted me to see because I'm watching it on a tiny screen in a badly lit room. Yeah, I mean, the stories for those movies are are very simple. Story? What story? (laughs) Exactly. They're more like tech demos. So it's like you really want to be in the theater, maybe even IMAX. Like, I'm not usually an IMAX person. I'm never a 3D person. I don't care for that. No, it's a terrible experience. My stomach does not like it. I don't. I don't. I don't know why people like it. But yeah, I've I've seen. I saw like the first Avatar in IMAX. In fact, it might have also been 3D. And yeah, I was just like, well, this this looks great. It looks amazing. I don't care about it, but it sure looks nice. Because coming back around, like there was a plot in there, but you don't care about any of the characters, which I think is the point that you're driving at at the moment. Yeah, I'm very slowly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and I actually had a very similar because my parents have been watching through various series of movies in order. Uh, I got here just in time for The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug, and I groaned all the way from my toes. Oh, I'm sure you were like... Well, actually, like throughout the whole thing, I was trying so hard not to (laughs) like the inside of my lip was almost bloody from how often I was like, shut up, shut up. They don't want to hear this. They're enjoying it. And you hadn't seen it before? You hadn't seen it before? I'd seen it twice before I saw it in theaters, but this was the extended edition. So it was a little bit different, but I was just like. The, I think I think the biggest problem with the Hobbit films, as opposed to the Lord of the Rings films, and there were all sorts of production problems. I want to live in the timeline where we got the Guillermo del Toro Hobbit films, because mm-hmm. God, that would have been beautiful. Um, he's got style. He's got so much style. Yeah, just Peter out Jackson of is like, let's just make it bigger. Well, but Peter Jackson but let's, had... But let's do everything as literal as possible. Sure. But Peter Jackson had such a beautiful vision for the original Lord of the Rings films. He did a wonderful job adapting these very thick novels into something that had heart and beauty and you could feel the depth of the world without getting lost in the deep exposition of it and really feel like the world was lived in because there it was about the intera- the the relationships between the characters. It was the deep love between Frodo and Sam. It was the brothers who were cousins mm-hmm, of Merry right. and Pippin. It was the moment in Fellowship of the Ring that always makes me start just weeping openly when when <laughs> Boromir says, I would have followed you, my captain, my king. Mm-hmm. And I just lose it every time. I've seen it <laughs> so many times over the last 20 plus years. Right, all, and all I the just relatable human stuff. Yeah, all of the like interactions between the people and how much they care about each other while doing this big thing. But the the plot is more of the way to keep the people together and moving forward. So so that brings me to what I really want to talk about, which is, you know, what is kind of the purpose of plot exposition and dialogue? Right. Like, how do we kind of balance all of these things together, particularly when it comes to role playing games? Mm-hmm. Uh, because you and I both know very well that exposition can get out of control. Oh, my Lord, can it ever. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yes. plot is less important than character. Um, yeah. In fact, I would say it's far less important. And this is like probably like my New Year's resolution halfway through the year uh, <laughs> when it comes to uh, being a DM. I really, really... I need to focus on the interpersonal relationships between my player characters more and more. Um, I need to do better at that and stop relying so much on plot. 
and like mm. encounter. Right. Like there's the game side and then there's the story side. And I think I've been focusing a lot on the game side, but I need to go back and, and think more about story again and really start pushing that. And this and seeing this this movie today that just really offended me on so many <laughs> <laughs> in Whoa. so many ways. Okay. Because to me it was just like treating the audience like they were stupid. Oh if it was just like Here's a character. They have no real point except for to remind you of this other character that was in the in the other movie. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Hey, look, they're fighting. That's entertainment, correct? <laughs> I think so speaking on the broad general level, I think that plot is only as important as the characters who are interested in it. Mm. And why are they interested in it? What is their buy-in? Why do they care? When I ran Thirsty Sword Lesbians, it was all about the character. But we oh, also yeah. needed at least the, the the bare vestments of a plot in order to keep things moving. And yeah, the so, sword part of it. <laughs> yeah, you know, the actual like fighting and all of that sort of thing. But that wasn't the core of the story. That was just... I mean, they were already together as a group. They cared about each other as a group and were working together for a common cause. And then they were thrust into a situation where it was like, you are being accused of doing this horrible thing and you know you didn't do it. So who did? There you go. That's the plot. Go find out who stole the Baron. And that's it. And it's totally fine, by the way, to have a simple plot. I think fact, it's better in many ways. It's probably better, yeah. Because we, what are we going to fill it with? Well, we need interesting dialogue. We need mm -hmm. characters that are going to say something interesting to each other. No, like the the thirsty and the and the lesbian. Those are the reasons we're there. Absolutely. Right? The the sword is our excuse to be there. <laughs> right. Yeah, hundred percent. And like the Dungeons and the Dragons are the reason that we're here, but really it needs to be about the characters that are within it. And, you know, watching, you know, Critical Role slash Vox Machina, you know, I'm seeing much, much more of this, you know, and it helps that they're all actors that understand story. Yes. And so they kind of recognize the beats as they're happening. They know how to kind of lean into it. They're like, I know what's happening now. The game is secondary. And the one player that they ever had who did the opposite is no longer with them, is no longer with them. Uh, the person who is like power gaming and cheating, you know, they they got rid of him. Mm -hmm. So uh, in exchange for all of these people that, you know, when I'm watching Vox Machina, I don't feel like I'm seeing anything particularly new, but I'm still being entertained. I'm still enjoying the characters. Sure. And that's something that I hear a lot in like because I watch uh, Zero Punctuation on YouTube frequently and have for well over a decade at so this point. Th that's a fun one. I love Zero Punctuation. And Yahtzee actually yeah. lives in the Bay Area. So I'm like, I have I have plans. I have plots. But regardless, <laughs> he also plays D&D &D on Adventure is Nigh with the Escapist. So I'm like, okay. ooh. How can we do a crossover? How can we yeah. do a one shot? How that sort of that sort of plotting and planning. I realized how, how bad do I kidnap him? As soon as, no, no. <laughs> he's he he does not seem like the kind. There is no person that is good to kidnap, but he also seems like he would be very frustrating to have as a kidnap victim. <laughs> anyway, I, I, um, I love those reviews. 
Oh, they're so good. But one of the things that he will emphasize sometimes is this game is not doing something new, but it is doing it well. And I think mm, that that yeah, is that's a good insight. Yeah. And I think that is as important sometimes, if not more so than, you know, doing something new for the sake of doing something new. Experimentation is amazing. And it's what we need to make games and uh, gaming systems and all of that stuff. That That's what pushes it forward is constantly trying something new. But if you just want to have a well-cooked steak and potatoes dinner and you don't want to go experiment with the puffer fish, I think that that is a fantastic thing to do. Yeah. I mix like three metaphors in there and uh, we're just going to roll with that. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe, maybe give an example then if you can. Um, Like when, when is, let me ask you this. Let me change the question entirely. Okay. How should exposition in a role-playing game be delivered? Mm. So I think that if you are, hmm, I think that if it gets to the point where a GM is talking at you for more than mm. 10 minutes, you have done something terribly, terribly wrong. I, yeah, I think if I think 10 minutes is well over, in fact. Very much so. I think that one of the most effective ways to do it is, A, have an NPC that the characters have a reason to talk to, give that information, or even more interestingly, in my opinion, have it be something that one of the player characters has a reason to know and can tell the rest of the group. Mm-hmm. Um, something similar happened when I was guesting over on Roll For It, where my character, <laughs> yes, I, I pulled this again because I was like, ah, I'm running out <laughs> of things to do. I played Kelladry Cooper. Okay. <laughs> Kelladry has now traveled the multiverse. I have like four different versions of her in sense. various games. Why not? Yeah, why I not? mean, well, especially with her story, that's not that unsur- that's not that surprising, but mm-hmm. Uh, the GM and I were talking back and forth about lore in his world, and I was super curious and super interested in all of it. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to have you tell them this. So here is all of the information that you know about it coming into it, and you can choose to share as much or as little as you see fit, which I thought was super interesting. He was going to have an NPC do it, but he saw how interested I was in the lore as a player. And he was like, no, no, no. Let's see what you got. Let's do this. I think that's key that he saw that interest and then decided to use it, right? Yeah. That makes a big difference because there's a lot of other players you could give them that sheet and they'll forget about it, right? They won't They won't worry about it. I might even be that guy sometimes, depending on the game. Well, it, it depends on the game. It depends on the lore. It depends yeah. on how deeply you, like how deeply you're interested in that lore for whatever reason. I was coming into a new world and I was like, okay, what do I know about this? What can I answer questions on when they ask this, that, and the other? And from that, he was like, okay, here are here's the four paragraph rundown of the things that you know, and you can choose to share or not. One really obnoxious thing is when you make knowledge checks and not you specifically, but like when no. a player makes uh, knowledge checks and then the GM gives them an info dump based on the die roll, especially if you rolled really well. So he's like, oh, I got to say more, you know, mm-hmm. and then you, you have two options. You either turn around and say all of that again, but in character to deliver the information again to the players, even though they've already heard it mm-hmm. or option B. You say, I say that. 
And then you have to count on everyone having paid attention and not completely checking out. No, they almost never do, unless you have someone who is a tremendously good note taker, like in two yeah, of the Tanya. games that I'm in. Yeah, Tanya or uh, Christy in the redacted reports or Cheryl in a couple of our home games uh, yeah. are amazing note takers so i can just like go and watch them type it up and be like okay i understand at least the core of what was just said hey i need to get tanya in one of my games so that i can know what my plot is um <laughs> <laughs> that would be really handy um but uh yeah if this is a thing where i believe you need to be as sparing as possible. And I think that the GM was right to give you some information up front that you can decide to share or not share, because that's going to make that dialogue feel a lot more natural. And the info dump was done outside of the realm where the audience is. And so when I say audience in this case, what I mean is everyone else at the table. You know, sure. when two characters are talking, everyone else turns into audience, I think. And so... Like we, in my mind, I always want to be mindful of how much air I'm eating. Mm -hmm. I have to make sure that I'm not just like burying the other person while I'm trying to get a point across. Yeah, because it is very easy to do because um, there's a on the GM side of things, there's a certain like, I need to tell you all of the things that you think that I think might be important for any reason whatsoever. And then people's eyes just start glazing over and if you don't catch that, you've lost them. Like, they have stopped having any reason to care about what's going on. Well, and, and the fact is, is we don't have a reason to care, right? Like, even being in, well, well within nerd space and having characters that I like and that I'm interested in, I recognize that nobody wants to hear me talk about my character because they're not invested in it. Yeah. They don't know about it. So they'll say stuff like stuff like, wow, that's cool or that's crazy. They, I mean, they don't care. They're just being yeah. nice. And so we I think it's important to be cognizant of that. It's like nobody nobody cares about your your Alucard knockoff. <laughs> right. It's good that you care about it and, and you can make that interesting in the game. But it's pretty hard to tell someone out of it about your character. Yeah. And have them be actually into it. Yeah, it can work sometimes. Like, I've told part of Keladry's story several times to people who were very interested in it, but I made sure to preface with, if at any point this is getting boring, please tell me I will not be offended. Because <laughs> I get it, because I've been there with the guy telling me about his vampire character, and Absolutely. I couldn't care less, uh -huh. you know, and I'm just like, oh boy, here we go. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I think it's very good to have any exposition within game handled by an NPC or a fellow player. Because with either of those, um, the person who is giving the exposition can say, oh, well, this is this castle and here is the name of it and a little bit of the history. And then the characters can ask questions because then they're engaged in what's going on and draw the knowledge out and they can ask about what they think is interesting about it and completely ignore what they don't think is interesting. And it takes you two minutes, maybe, at the absolute outside to set up, here are the like most salient points and then characters who are interested in any of those points can be like, oh, tell me more about X, Y, and Z. Treat it, <laughs> treat it like a Bioware conversation tree. <laughs> well, yeah. And by the way, Bioware never had like 
the narrator until Varric, right? And even Varric was still a character in the game. And Varric was very well handled. Like, I loved the way that they did that. Yeah, Varric was cool. Um, There was very little just info dumping. And that was really nice. And so the way I've heard about, like, one piece of advice I've heard when it comes to exposition is basically don't if you can, right? Like, you want to make everyone work for their information. Mm Mm-hmm. And so if you've ever been in like a conversation like where someone's interviewing you and you have to give like legal responses and like you don't you don't offer information, you say the minimum. And and in a lot of ways, you kind of got to be that like that in in exposition. Well, tell me the history of this place. Absolutely not. Of course (laughs) not. No, you got to go find somebody. You go talk to them. Okay, Hey, sir, will you tell me the history of this place? I've got work to do, right? Um, you know, maybe you get a tidbit, but everything shouldn't be like just easy. You know, sure. like your information as a GM is precious. And I get it. You're excited. You want to share. You want to tell them all about this pretty, pretty world that you've made. Yeah. But the thing I got to tell you is nobody cares. Sure. And if they do care, they'll dig for it. I mean, they'll dig. Yeah. And then you will sh- you'll share it and you'll both be happy. Exactly. Like I don't play the Dark Souls <laughs> games. It has never been something that interests me. I don't like bashing my head into a brick wall for fun. However, I think that the way that they handle lore in those games is absolutely brilliant because you can, from what I understand, you can get through the whole game and only get like the most generalized sense of, oh, yeah, go, go light the fire. Keep, it, keep, yes. the, keep the age of light going for a little bit longer. But if you Correct. start reading item descriptions, item descriptions, if you're talking yeah. to people or you're picking up these books and you're reading them, then you find out more and more. That's something that uh, Dragon Age Origins, I felt, did very well as well. Like you got pieces of conversation across all of Thedas in order to put together what was the most important. But then if you wanted to, I made a point of picking up every readable book. And actually, like, sitting there and reading it, because yeah, the, I thought the it codex was fascinating. Yeah, the codex entries were great. But that's because I was interested in the lore, and I wanted to know more about it, and it meant something to me, and that was why I went searching for it. You can get through that game and not have, you know, a tenth of the information that I picked up, and it's fine. It's still a good experience. Yeah, and they would get... They would cover a lot with um, party banter. They would also cover a lot with uh, banter between NPCs. Like mm-hmm. when you're just like walking through an area of town, two characters are talking to each other. And it's there to sort of illustrate what's happening in the world and what this place is and who these people are without, again, bashing your you over the head with it. Um, like it, one of my favorite moments is when you're in Denarim in the first game. Mm-hmm. And there's these two priestesses and one of them is like giving a sermon to all the passerbys and she keeps like fumbling her words and putting food in the place of where she should say words. I remember that. And the other one's like, I think you're hungry, basically. <laughs> like, Honey, why don't you come inside and get some food? <laughs> it's not ham, it's harm. <laughs> <You know>? like, <laughs> and, <laughs> I really enjoyed that, you know. Like you really get a sense of like what the chantry is about and what the chant of light is and like what what the religious values are and how that relates to how how they manage magic in this world and why they feel the way that they feel. You know, it that really came to life for me. 
Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right. When it comes to Elden Ring, I got to tell you, I don't think I know of any other fictional universe with such rich lore. 100%. From from everything that I've heard. It is insane how deep and interesting and mysterious the lore is. And yeah, you got to dig. <laughs> you got to dig. Yeah. You have to infer. You have to, you know, red string it. You got to watch <laughs> YouTube videos where someone else red stringed it, but better, you know. Uh, and there's a lot of channels out there where they're just like, there's a series called Prepare to Cry, and they just go over like something in the story. And it's like an hour long video for one piece of the lore, you know, and it's just really, really interesting. Um, so I love that. And I, I want to do that in my games. And the other patron game, uh, Gnarled Frontier, the one you're not in, mm-hmm. there is basically no established lore whatsoever. Uh, because the world is new and has never been inhabited before. Oh, cool. And so everything that they're discovering is an inference. It's a hint, you know, because there's no book. There's no book to read. There's no one to ask. That Everyone in this of, world is just as new as you are. That explains some of the things I've seen over in that channel. They're naming things <laughs> as they find them, aren't they? Yeah. In fact, the, the joke is if you kill it first, you get to name it. Oh, that's wonderful. Right. So because they do things like they they discover flora and fauna that is native to the world, but not to any other world. And so they they get these descriptions. And so in Roll20, you can create these um, these handouts and there is a section of it that is visible to players if they have access to that handout. And then there's a section underneath it that's just for GM. So even if they have access, they still can't see what's written there. Mm-hmm. So I will make, let's say, a flower that exists in this world, and I will give for free a cursory one-line impression that you get when it, when looking at it. Like, this is a, a violet that reminds you of lavender, but smells like rotten eggs, you know? Oh. Something like that. Tasting. You know, I don't know. <laughs> Something <laughs> like that. And they're like, okay. Uh, and it helps that one of the players is a cook. And mm. so I've got hidden notes about how it works in food, what sort of potions you can make out of it. Can this be crafted into gear? Yes or no? And how? And what what kind of properties might it have? And all of that is is hidden until they unlock it. And so they have to examine it. They have to take down time to understand, like, what does this herb do? If I collect these frogs, what are they going to do for me? We just killed this big monster. You know, what else can I learn about it? So if I ever run into it again, I know how to better deal with it. Or can I make a cool sword out of it? You know, there's there's all this this stuff, but it's all hidden until they discover it. And it sounds like it takes like a, a lot of extra work for you as a GM it to does. build that out. <laughs> but it also sounds like it's super rewarding because they're they're learning more about the world around them through the little bits and pieces. And I think that's absolutely brilliant, frankly. Well, well, the re- well thank you. But the reward is them being interested, right? Yeah. So if I gave them a, like, imagine the difference. Let's let's say that in during session zero, I just gave them a full list. All the information's unlocked. I'm sure they would check out immediately. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and how offended would I be? Terribly. You know, spend it, spending hours and hours of, of my definitely not free time. Time I should have spent grading and instead <laughs> wrote you information about a, a mythical flower. And then you didn't care. 
And by the way, I don't write the whole freaking codex before I start the game, right? Like I, I write, you know, two or three, maybe five things if I'm feeling ambitious. And that's the stuff that's going to be introduced this week. And then they might discover it. And if they don't, great. I have it for next time. You know, and that's less work that I have to do. And maybe I don't even have all the hidden information just yet, but I'll have some. So I can fill out the rest as I kind of can sense where they're going. Or if I need to make it up on the spot, I can then write it after the fact. <laughs> well, and yeah, you can you can make it up and take your notes in your GM area and be like, what did I just say? Crap. <laughs> oh, yeah. I get in trouble for that all the time. Um, when players really pay attention. That's like, I thought dangerous. you said this. And I'm like, oh, I don't remember saying that. that that's because <laughs> my memory is trash. Oh, I completely understand that. It's something that I've been talking about lately where it's just like, if I don't write things down or if I don't have like a pictorial record, it's gone. I have so much difficulty remembering stuff. So I wrote something and I want you to tell me which section you think is better, right? Which version? So I, I've written the same, basically like a GM talking to players, like giving them information. I want you to tell me which you like better. Okay. Okay. So here's number one. Here's version A of, of, of this. Okay. You see the very old Lord of the Manor. He has been the Lord for 55 years and has a reputation for being impatient with outsiders due to some past attempts to undermine his authority or outright attempt a coup. You heard about one case where a group of merchants asked to build a school, and they used it as a front for running a brothel in the after hours. The town is well known for its rich treasury in an impenetrable vault. Earning the Lord's trust will be difficult, and you will need to convince him to help you, or your quest is doomed to failure. Okay. You're already getting it. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. you're like, mm-hmm. Because, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, who cares? Right. Yeah. Like, like, okay. why, why, why do I care? Okay. Option B. All right. Here's option B. It's the same information, basically. You see the ancient, decrepit lord furrow his brow and with a shaking finger turns the page of the ledger. His deep, sunken eyes look up at you with some contempt. Well, then, what do we have here? An angel investor looking to build businesses they can exploit my people with? Perhaps do-gooders looking to build a school as a front for a brothel? Or maybe I will be finally graced with honest brigands who simply want to plunder the treasury. Yeah, all the same information, but delivered in dialogue by an NPC. Much more interesting than just straight, dry codex entry. Yes, absolutely. So you're just like... You understood, okay, maybe you didn't even know he had a treasury, but they just said, here's a point of interest mm. within the world. Like, what you don't want players to feel in a, in a RPG game, and I'm, and I'm feeling this again as I'm playing Diablo, and Diablo is like the opposite of Elden Ring in so many ways. Like, I don't even care what the dialogue is. I don't even care what the characters say because it doesn't matter. It's not interesting. Uh, you click skip dialogue and there is a button on your map and then you walk there and mm. then you do one of the five quest types that exists, which usually amount to kill everything that there is. And then you go back to the person and either they send you to another spot or they give you golden XP. Ah, uh, and yeah. who cares? 
Yeah, I can see that being not even interesting. I can see that being useful for like XP grinding. But dear Lord, do I hate having to like fetch quests. I don't like the majority of fetch quests unless I have a reason to care about it. By the way, we need to make that an episode one of these days. Like, what is a quest? Sure. Like, let's really examine that word at some point. Because I think that is the most misused word. You know, to me, it just, it it infers so much. And it is used as fetch this, escort that, survive for five minutes. (laughs) All right. I have that written down in our potential topics document. We got, uh, (laughs) as as Dan says over on the redacted reports, it's written down so it's real. So it's (laughs) real. That's true. Um, Mm -hmm. So... Anyway, that was that was good. Okay, so I also made an example of dialogue between two characters that I think might be successful. Okay. Okay. And so I wanted to show a dialogue between characters that, and this is more of like the player's responsibility. Okay. This is something for them to handle. And uh, this is the, the way I think to best deliver it. One thing you have to do is make sure that you're not droning on forever. Your conversation isn't going in circles or going too long because you're, again, your audience, the other players are going to check out. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and that, and that is at least partially the GM's responsibility to gently curtail when it's like, okay, you've just hit the same point several times. It's time to have someone bust in the door or a plot point happen or X, Y, and Z. But it is also very good for the players to have a good sense of those beats and know when a scene has run its course. Yeah, if you want a GM to just throw orcs at you, just keep your dialogue going. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at a certain point, orcs attack. <laughs> I mean, that's one way to get uh, to grind up that XP. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, so here's my example, all right? And I want to know what you think about it. Okay. I sit down next to Grothic and sigh. I swirled the wine in the glass a bit while I gathered my thoughts. Hey, Grothic, I can understand your dilemma. What happened to your family was a tragedy, indeed. I place a comforting hand on his shoulder. Grothic moves his body away from Tilden, uncomfortable with the show of sensitivity. He sniffs and reaches over to hoist the tankard to his face while trying to use his arm to sneakily brush away a tear. People die. They weren't strong enough. That's it. He takes a long, deep drink and thumps the empty tankard on the bar. Hmm. So, did you, do you learn anything about the characters without the character saying this about them? Sure. Like, some of it was, was perhaps on the nose, but like... Well, but I mean, things become tropes because they are useful. Things become tropes because they work. So... Yeah, I, I think I have a better sense of who these characters are and a little bit of what they've been through without necessarily, you know, having the deep. So when I was a young lad. <laughs> we see that in, in shows all the time, like somebody tells somebody else a story. And sometimes it can be interesting, but the man, that story better be amazing. So like Grothic, first of all, the name alone should probably tell you something, right? <laughs> can you describe what you know about Grothic? Uh, probably a big, burly, burly type. Probably, I would guess, an orc or a half-orc, just based on on the name. (laughs) 
Correct. And, 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 and the voice that you chose is definitely along those <laughs> lines. That also helps, yeah. And Tilden was the other one. What do you know about Tilden? A little bit more sophisticated. Um, yeah. I mean, a little bit, but also more emotionally intelligent and able to you know, reach out and bridge the divide between them. Not going to take a guess as to race because there's a lot of options. Yes. But um, definitely more, I would say, probably probably someone who's more the heart of the party. Yeah. So I think that that's exactly what I was going for. Right. What, by the way, one of them drinks wine. In a glass, mm-hmm. he swirls it around. He's he's like trying to like aerate it so he can get the full experience. The other guy's you know sucking down beer, mm-hmm. right? In a great big heavy tanker that goes thump. The yeah, it goes thump on there. He's frustrated because he thumps it on the table without saying, "I'm very frustrated to be honest, mm-hmm. and I don't know how to talk about my feelings." And it all started with my father who didn't let me talk about my feelings, right? <laughs> <laughs> Like we we get it. We can we can guess at all of that without it being explicitly told to us. This also has a combination of description as well as dialogue, right? Mm-hmm. Where you as the player can narrate, right? Yeah. You you can give some description and don't like do these like nine page I'm wearing a blue shirt and with frills but not this design and with a yellow you know, where it can get too much. Right. Give me what I need right now. Yeah. That said, fit checks are very important. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I say I say that, for, for, uh, you know, teasingly, but it's also it's also true to an extent. Like if you do a quick, hey, this is what they're wearing. That does tell you a lot about them. Just for the love That's of true. the gods, do not overdo it. Right. Oh, I mean, you can go th- you can you can go through the laundry list or you could say he tips his feathered hat sure right and it's like okay well that goes on the list and in another part of the dialogue you can say he reaches into the ruffled sleeve of his jerkin and you know pulls out a playing card you know whatever mm-hmm. or she shifts her shoulders or her tunic suddenly feeling tighter than it, than it should yes uh you know, one of the laces drops over her shoulder mm-hmm. right and she brushes a single hair away. Like, we already know a little bit about these characters and what their intents and personalities might be just from those, those little bits of information. So when you, when you hear bad dialogue, usually what's happening is characters are talking about what the scene is happening. They're, they're plotting at each other. And this, you know, kind of getting back to the movie I saw today, they, they were just like every piece of dialogue was just plot, 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 plot. Ah, yes. Plot, 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 plot. You know, and they're just. As you know, Indiana, we have to do X, Y, and Z. Yes, of course <laughs> I know this unnamed goddaughter because of X, <laughs> Y, and Z. This is very important to me because of thing that we should already know. Yes, but we're saying it anyway for the for the audience to keep up with our plot they don't care about. Because clearly uh, we think that our audience is an idiot. Now, I don't say that specifically <laughs> about dial of whatever. I have just seen that happen before where I'm like, if you don't trust me to keep up with your plot, why did you bother to make it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, by, by the way, I think this also creates a lot of rewatchability. In a, in a movie, like, it's the same thing with games, like replayability. It, can I discover something again by going through again? Or did you just give me everything in one go? 
Sure. That's one of the things that I absolutely love about the BBC Sherlock is that they, at least for the first two seasons, because it kind of went off the rails in the last two seasons, but in the first two seasons, they really trusted their audience. Like, they would do the big wrap-up reveal scene toward the end, which, fine, but they, throughout, would see little hints of things, things as as simple, <laughs> things as complex and hard to catch as lighting a room like the painting from this the, the painter that's referenced in the episode. Mm, and if you look at that and wow. go, oh my God, if you're uh if you're an art nerd, you look at that and go, wait, that is lit exactly the same way as the painter that they're <laughs> talking about in this episode. They didn't think about that, did they? <laughs> oh my God, they did, right? Oh my God, they did. And I mean, people and, have. And then rich... if you're not that guy, then you read the blog that that other guy wrote and then you go <gasps> back and watch it so you can see it, right? Absolutely. That was one of the things that had <laughs> Tumblr, like back in the day when Tumblr was interesting, it was partially because of the essays that were written about things like as simple as, as Sherlock looking at John saying, bit not good. <laughs> Just like those few sentences, not good, bit not good. Where it's like, oh, yeah, this is someone who is not versed in human interaction. This is someone who has always spent his life kind of at a distance with people. So he doesn't know what is considered to be good human interaction. And that comes out in two words. Not good. I think you could almost define this as the difference between art and product. Yes. You know, like nailing down what art is, is definitely like a difficult exercise. I've tried to do it. I always anger people when I do it because we all have such different interpretations. But I, I do think that like putting craft in something as opposed to just checking boxes, you know, at least has a lot to do with it. And when I watched the movie today, I felt much more like product. And I mean, all films are products. Absolutely. But like, I don't want to be aware of it in the moment. You know what I mean? Like, I want that suspension of disbelief. I don't want to be very aware that I'm watching a film. You know, I want to get carried away in the moment. I want to look down after the movie is over and go, oh, my God, that was three hours. No way. Yeah. Yeah, that was honestly one of, like, the the biggest disappointments when I first watched the first Hobbit movie. Um, because I had been looking forward to that movie since I walked out of Return of the King back in 2002, back in the theaters. <laughs> And I was so disappointed to realize that I kept checking my watch. Yeah, yeah, that's horrible because you're like, oh, my gosh. Well, there, there could only be like 15 minutes left, right? It's like, no, you've only been here for 15 minutes. And it feels like four <laughs> hours. And I'm just over here like, what happened? An earlier Peter Jackson movie with, you know, King Kong, if you remember that. Mm. Super long movie. And it very much feels like a super long movie. Did not care for it. At least, at least for me, that was a slog. Yeah. So then I think the question is how, what, 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 what can GMs look out for to kind of check themselves? And what can players look out for to help improve their game on this? Yeah. So I think that one um, dialogue needs to be quick and concise and deliver information don't make it like a real conversation because it won't end. If players won't stop talking, throw orcs at them. Um, if they won't talk at all, that's a different problem. Mm -hmm. That can be a huge challenge, like trying to get them to be in character and to be in that moment. And what I would recommend is 
get an NPC in there to help drive things until they can do it on their own. Uh, make them care about that NPC and then probably kill them. Oh, yeah. Horribly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've actually got to kind of disagree with you on that. Sure. Go ahead. Because I think that having conversation just for the sake of imparting information falls into this is just to drive the plot. Right. We don't want that. Sometimes what we want also is just character expression. Yeah. Right? So, we're, we're trying to get to know you. Yeah. So I, th I think that that could be perhaps rephrased as not necessarily imparting information, but. Um, yeah, we don't want them plotting at each other. Yeah, we don't want them plotting at each other. I think uh, coming back around to what I said in my very first episode with this, and I think I'm actually going to bring it in here. Maybe we can talk about it in depth and at another time. Curiosity. Mm. Curiosity, I think, is such an important key to characters and their interaction with the world and their interactions with each other. So everyone comes in with, you know, their varying degrees of backstory. Some people come in with a paragraph. Some people come in with nine pages. I don't care, honestly, as long as they're implemented well, whichever it is. Another thing I would say as a piece of advice, and this might be a little bit easier in person, but definitely pay attention. Mm. Uh, pay attention to like how people are feeling. Are they checking their watch? Are they looking at their phone? Are they looking around the room? Mm -hmm. Do you say something big and jaws drop? Are people meticulously writing notes? Are they, you know, what are they doing? Yeah. And so like, and if they're, if they're checking their watch, it may be time to address them. Mm -hmm. You may, it may be time to put the, the scene to bed and to move on. And as players, we also need to watch each other. And like, I really love it when players try to rope in someone else into a conversation because they notice they haven't said something in a while. Oh, I love that. That kind of intense uh, attention to detail and attention to their fellow players and the other characters and wanting to know more about them, bringing that curiosity in is just super valuable, in my opinion. Absolutely. And that's very, very secret ingredient stuff. Like, just be compassionate and empathetic. You know, be aware that there's other people here. The other thing I would say, especially for GMs, is like, this isn't just about you, right? This is not about what brilliance you have brought to the table, that you're just showing everyone else how how awesome and creative you are. Like, you get to enjoy some of that, but boy, you got to earn it. Yeah. And so you remember that, number one, you're here for them. You're here for to make sure that the players are entertained. Mm-hmm. And if you do a good job of that, they will reward you better than you can reward yourself. Yeah. If they if they respond in kind and they talk about your game outside of the game, that is literal gold for you. Absolutely. But if you're self-indulgent, if you over explain your exposition info dump, if you, you know, do self inserts on NPCs. If you preach a message or like a premise like way too hard, if you do too much likening to real world politics, you know, these are all things that are more about you and your ego that aren't necessarily going to be part of that formula that is going to result in, you know, a fully balanced reward, like to compare it to a meal, right? Like. You can lick the frosting off the cake right now, or you can, you know, in, enjoy like a fully 
cooked three course meal. You know what I mean? And you can't make that on your own. Yeah, you, absolutely. They have to give it to you. And to and for them to give it to you, you have to give them ingredients to work with. Yeah. And I think that one of the because I see this as a danger for the GM who does like a huge amount of world building and a huge amount of prep. This is not to denigrate either of those. I think that those are both very good. It's not the way that I GM, but I admire the people who do that. But there is such a danger of preparing so hard that there is a sense of, well, if I don't tell them all of the cool things that I've made for them, then it was a waste. As opposed to letting them just explore it and find it and immerse themselves in it. I mean, I absolutely say if, if you are the kind of person who is like writing paragraphs about a city or whatever, keep doing that. Just don't info dump that as soon as the people walk into the city because they will, A, they will forget most of it. And they and the the parts they remember they won't care about. Why should they? They haven't discovered it themselves. There are seven districts in this city, starting with number one, the uh-huh. market district. <laughs> the following vendors can be found within the market district. On the west end, it is. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then and then you're a walking tour. It's not it's not a lived in world. It's not something that they have any reason to care about because it's just you know, this wall of info that's just slamming them in the face. And that's not interesting. But do keep building those worlds. Make the world feel feel lived in. Just handle it in snippets of dialogue. Handle it in, you know, they pick up a book and they read a paragraph about something where it's like, oh, this is something that I'm interested in about this city. So I went looking for it. And now here's the information that I'm getting. Exactly. And, and, the, and the thing that you just need here, if you are the in-depth world builder, if you like to do all of that information, the only thing you really need here is temperance. Yeah. If you can learn to just hold back and be patient, it'll be more worth it to you in the end. It's like that that old uh, experiment with, with the kids and the marshmallows, where it's like if you... Yes, yeah, that yeah, is yeah, so yeah. true. Where it's like if you no, have... No, no, explain it. I, I will. I will absolutely explain it. If I stop talking, great. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please. <laughs> uh, the experiment was that there were two. That, that there were there were children who were given uh, each each given a marshmallow, and they right. were told you can eat the marshmallow now, but if you wait, then you will get another marshmallow in like ten minutes or something. I don't remember what the mm. length of time was, but it was it was long yeah, for a five year old. Yeah. And the kids who just scarfed down the marshmallow were less satisfied than the ones mm-hmm. who waited and it got to enjoy the two marshmallows that they got 10 minutes later. They got double the sweet. That is the best thing in the world for the five-year-old. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Marshmallows are life. Marshmallows are wonderful. We're going to make s'mores <laughs> later and I'm very excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's the other, you could extend it further. Don't eat the two and you get a full-on s'more later, right? Oh, Oh, absolute heaven. And, and when they when the kid ate the first one, they're going to smell that s'more later and they're going to learn a valuable lesson. <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to be a valuable lesson in patience, because I think you're absolutely right. Um, assuming that this is a campaign, because, of course, all the rules go out the window when you're dealing with a one shot. Yeah. Who knows how those work? I don't know. Uh, One of these days we'll get someone on who's very good at those. And it's not me. <laughs> it's um, not really me either. But if if you're running a campaign, have patience, trust your players and trust that 
if this is something that is actually interesting to them, and that's a lot of work for a GM to gently seed, they will find it. They will look for it. They are interested in it. You don't need to give them the 15 to 30 minute info dumps where they're sitting and playing match three games on their phone and completely lose everything that you just said. By the way, I literally did that to my children. The marshmallow experiment? Yeah, yeah, but I used cookies because uh, I had heard it was called the, the cookie test and yeah. I heard a different version of it. And I did this with my oldest and she passed. I was very, very pleased. I explained to her the rules and what would happen. And I made her wait, you know, like 10 minutes or 15 or whatever it was. And then I came back and she had the two cookies and she kind of looked at me like, what was the point of that? Right? Like <laughs> you told me there'd be two, like, of course I'm going to wait, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, well, you're the one that gets the college money. <laughs> <laughs> She's a smart one. Uh, yeah. And that, that is, that's fantastic. And I mean, also then to, to the players, cause I mean, the, the GM side of that is relatively easy for the player side of it. Be curious. Be curious about each other. Be curious about the world around you. If something catches your interest, ask about it. And then, you know, I'm bad at this. I'm working on it. Take good notes. Remember what they told you. So, and the thing I want to say is I don't want to give the impression that, hey, world builder, the world you made is not interesting. It is interesting. The problem is, it, the, the difference is, I guess I should say, is you needed to make it interesting to them, right? You yeah. need them to care about it. You need their buy-in. And like, just like a meal, they got to eat it one, one bite at a time. If you stick a funnel in their mouth, <laughs> you know, and dump it in, they're not going to appreciate it as much. <laughs> yeah. You're going to, you're going to run into like the, the, the beer problems in university. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't treat beer like that. Yeah. Enjoy Why would you your do drink. That to, what did, what did beer, what did beer do to you? <laughs> Don't answer that, actually. Ah, uh, um, yes. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I think that we've beat this dead horse. Uh, I think that they understand. Uh, so hopefully that'll be helpful for people learning how to manage information. I guess that's really where we got to here was how to manage information in a narrative. And so don't write a script like uh, Dial of Destiny. That's <laughs> and don't write a game like that either, you know? Uh, yeah. And remember that, you know, plots, <sighs> plots only matter in as much as it serves the characters. And I would say the same thing about combat and things like D&D. &D. Combat is not interesting, at least not to me. And I feel like this is a fairly common problem. Absolutely. Combat is not interesting unless there is a reason behind it. What do you want to get? What can you only get in this way? And what kind of information does that tell you about the world around you? Yeah, and is your, are your opponents expressing characterization mm -hmm. in, that, in that combat? Because their characterization needs to go along with their turn. Um, and, you know, especially if the combat goes long, it can be hard to keep up that momentum. Yeah. Uh, but there's no reason why necessarily a fight has to end in death. You can always call it early for some reason. Maybe they want to leave. Maybe someone else interrupts. Uh, maybe the rocks fall. I don't know. You know, all kinds of things can happen. But maybe maybe you need to change a scene if it, if it feels long. Uh, sure. But that's a, perhaps a topic for another time. 
Yeah, we can talk about that some other time because I think there's a lot to dig into with D&D combat specifically and why I think other systems are interested in the way they handle conflict, not necessarily combat, but conflict. Yeah, well, and conflict is really the thing we want, right? That's Combat is just the outward expression of that. But anyway. Yeah, <laughs> we, we can get into that another time. All that being said, <laughs> you're absolutely right. So, um, yeah, I guess that's about it, right? I believe so. So until next time, friends, stay inspired. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Inspiration Point. If you'd like to support what we do, go and check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash inspiration point. If you can't support us directly, that's okay. You can also help support us by telling people about the podcast. A little inspiration goes a long way. Inspiration Point is edited and produced by Tiana Hansen and is distributed by Quest and Chaos. If you like what you hear with us, give Quest and Chaos YouTube or Twitch channels a visit. They play Dungeons and Dragons on a weekly basis and have a bunch of campaigns of Call of Cthulhu, D&D, and board game playthroughs archived on their YouTube. Join us next week for more inspiration. Thank you.